Hey loves, this is Kate, the founder of Loam, and I hope you all are holding up during these hard days. The last few weeks have been all of the feels, grief, anxiety, sadness, curiosity, gratitude, and coming home to the Loam community continues to be such a gift. So thank you, thank you for showing up. Today I am talking to the lovely Lucia Oliva Hanley about social sciences, hope, fear, and the connection between the climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic. Lucia was one of the very first guests on Loam Listen. Tune into her podcast, Who Are You as a Messenger, for a much-needed dose of medicine. And man, is she one smart cookie. As a community development manager at the Climate Advocacy Lab, as well as a Zen practitioner who lives and practices at Dai Bo Satsu Zendo, Lucia devotes her daily life to supporting climate regeneration and community care. Lucia, thank you so much for making Thanks the for time having today. Me, Kate. It's really nice to hear you. So to help frame this conversation, I want to first learn more from you about the connection between COVID-19 and the climate crisis. As the pandemic escalates, mainstream media's emphasis on the climate is shifting but the two issues are inextricably intertwined. Yeah, I think that's right, Kate. And it's an interesting moment because I think that, you know, we in the climate space are seeing a transition from folks having climate change as a big issue in their minds and in the public consciousness for the first time, you know, in a decade at the beginning of this year, going into like a big political year. And then there's a lot of anxiety, I would say, in that climate advocacy community that because of the pandemic, this massive climate issue that has just started to get the attention that it really needs this year might be totally eclipsed. But I think you know, a lot of the thinking that I am seeing around how these two things come together really speaks to the fact that in both of these scenarios with the COVID-19 pandemic, with the climate crisis, we are seeing the scale of disruption uh, through the pandemic that we are being informed by research, by sciences, that we should be expecting from the climate crisis in time, right? And each day that goes by, each month that goes by, uh, we see more climate chaos occurring. Uh, But what will happen when that chaos is kind of evenly distributed and continuous in the way that the pandemic is? Uh, This moment feels really instructive in that respect. Um, It feels instructive in terms of the types of responses that are needed And I think it feels instructive in terms of the critical role of government. Um, I think that's something that feels really huge right now that I think in this country and around the world, we are seeing that there's a difference in the capacity and the effectiveness of response when there's coordinated government efforts and when there's not. Uh, And you know, for better or for worse, in this country, we see those discrepancies at the state level, where states that were really aggressive early on are seeing a much flatter spike in uh, cases of the virus. And that's going to mean that this is going to last for those states a little bit longer, or perhaps much longer. But it also means that the emergency medical services, uh, the hospital facilities, that sort of thing is not going to be overwhelmed. And so, you know, we're just, we're seeing so much about 
how we need to coordinate a massive response to a massive issue. We're also seeing just the ingenious responses from everyday people. Uh, I have been reading A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit recently, and that is an interrogation into the ways in which communities respond in the face of disaster and very much pushing against the idea that communities are just looting and individuals are just out for themselves. I think this pandemic mirrors what Solnit has researched and dug up, which is that people are so willing to come to the aid of one another. There's really so few people in our day-to-day lives, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in any of the yeah, in any of the networks in which we find ourselves, so few people who are just out for themselves right now. Um, so many acts of just small creativity to try to support one another. Uh, and I think that that's really huge. We're seeing people go back to things as simple as, you know, baking bread and gardening. And these things feel like a far cry from how we're going to save the world overall from climate change. Uh, But you, you know, in the loan community talk about micro movements and we talk about the role of food sovereignty and agroecology and sustainable food systems in addressing climate change. So it feels like there's so much right now that offers us just fertile ground and a test bed to understand the types of life changes that we're going to need to make in response to climate change. Um, There's so much else that I could say about that. I think so many examples of what's happening right now that are very instructive for addressing the climate change. But the two two last things that I want to hold up are, one, that I think there's also a lot of awareness that when people's day-to-day lives are being impacted in very serious ways, it's not necessarily the time to make an ask about, like, volunteering to, to work on climate. Um, And I think right now we're seeing the climate advocacy community really work to remain nimble and to pivot and to understand that folks are having really differentiated experiences right now. Like you're having a different experience if your partner is an emergency medical professional or a first responder who's going out every day than if you are like a working class person who just got laid off or who maybe lost hours then if you're like a white collar worker whose day-to-day life just has, you know, shifted to remote work and you're navigating how to work and live alone full time. So people's capacities to respond right now are really different. And I think we're we're looking at how to really listen to what is possible, to what people can do in these times, um, to very differentiated needs. And the other thing that I would list uh, that I would lift up is just that I don't think for like for you and I, Kate someone in our age range has never seen this level of, of coherence globally as what we're seeing now. Like everyone is in such a similar moment across borders. And I think that's truly remarkable because even in the chaos and in the, you know, the depth of uncertainty in which we find ourselves, how long is this going to last? Am I going to get the virus? Are my loved ones going to succumb to the virus? Like there's so much uncertainty and yet this, there's this extraordinary level of coherence where everyone on the planet right now is grappling with the same issue. And I think that's something really, really beautiful uh, that we need to reflect on right now as well. So much of what you just shared, Lucia, really resonated with me. 
Um, first of all, I love A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. That should absolutely be recommended reading for everyone right now. It is so exquisitely written and thoughtful and full of really rooted in reality insight into how to meet this moment. Um, so I'm I'm really grateful to you for referencing that read. And also just the difference in capacity feels so true. Everyone is holding this moment really differently. Um, and I've been moved at, at how generous people have been and compassionate and making space for that um, and for honoring their own suffering and the suffering of others in a way that feels truly graceful right now. So something that I want to talk more about is hope and fear in this moment and communicating around that. Because in a lot of ways, your work centers on the role of cultural strategy in creating narratives that can help each one of us meet this moment. So I'm curious to know how your work studying the social sciences shapes how you are understanding this time and in what ways finding a balance between hope and fear is informing your communication as a climate advocate. Yeah. Thanks for that, Kate. Um, just to start with some of the basics, uh, a lot of my work is informed by the research from the social sciences. So we would say everything from political science, communications, psychology, uh, across that spectrum, we look at how do people respond to climate change from an emotional level. And as advocates, there's a lot of assumptions that have been made, the importance of scaring people and ensuring that folks really understand the threat of the problem, uh, the, you know, the critical role of leaving people with hope in the face of such enormous challenges. And what we find in the research, and I think it's something that we really have to think about in a context-specific way. So the research tells us that either fear or hope alone become ineffective as motivators for different reasons. Fear on its own, and I think this is more intuitive, if we only leave people with fear-based messages and only share all of the reasons the world is about to end, uh, it's really, really disempowering, right? It leaves people anxious. It maybe puts people into a state of denial or disengagement. Like there is a paralyzing effect of that. Um, so it immobilizes people, which is not what we're looking for. On the flip side of that, and I think less intuitive, is the fact that if you leave people only with hope, uh, what we see is that people assume that a problem is being taken care of. They're like, oh, you're telling me all of the solutions. You're telling me everything that's going right. Sounds like it's taken care of. I'm going to, you know, going to go back to my normal life because that hopeful vision on its own sounds lovely. So what we find in terms of really developing people's sense of efficacy, the sense that I can do something and that what I'm going to do is going to have an impact that the system that I'm going to take that action in is going to be responsive. Uh, we actually have to combine those two narratives. We have to combine those two emotions. So we need people to feel enough fear that it's motivating, that there is, right? And this is the intelligence of fear in an animal, in a primal body, which is ultimately what we are. We're just little animals running around the planet. And we have fear as an operating system, as a program that runs in us to inform us of danger, that's really important. That's what motivates us to run in the wild away from a threat or in our circumstances to actually take action to respond to a threat. 
Uh, but similarly, we also want to couple that with a sense that whatever you're running toward, whatever action you're taking is actually going to be meaningful, that that action is going to have an impact. And oftentimes uh, where we see that's most effective, and this is where the role of organizing comes in, um, folks are going to get a sense that their actions are comparable to the scale of the problem when we scale our actions together through the vehicle of organizing and collective action taking. And so I think in this moment, uh, we have to be really mindful of the fact that fear is already totally pervasive. Uh, And that's just one of the things that happens when, as humans, we are faced with a great deal of uncertainty. And so with that in mind, what are the ways in which folks in the climate movement and broadly can understand that we need to validate that fear because it's real? The urgent threats that people are facing right now are not abstractions. They are perhaps closer to home and more tangible uh, than you know, things that most of us see in our lifetimes, having like a day-to-day threat on our lives is something that many of us don't have a regular experience of in this country. Um, but so we have to be validating of that and understand that that's where folks are at. But I think there's a really big role right now for folks to help lift up the sense of hope, not a false hope, but a grounded hope in, you know, the strength of communities and the incredible courage and dedication of physicians and the medical community of the ways in which our neighbors are showing up or just how we're taking care. There's so many little silver linings in this moment that I think we need to be lifting up so that people are not just paralyzed in fear. Um, And maybe I'll leave it there for a second. I think there's a couple other things we could talk about, Kate, in terms of also the role of spirituality in that. And also in terms of just, you know, one of the things I've frequently referred back to is a saying that is attributed to Bruce Lee. Not actually sure that it's he who says it, but this sense that, you know, under duress, we don't rise to the occasion. We actually fall to the highest level of our training. And so when we're in a fear-based state, we're actually going to be contracting a little bit and we have to practice what it means to open up and to remain available and responsive moment to moment in the face of a really, really uh, tangible, you know, credible threat, so to speak. Spirituality is definitely something that I want to explore with you because I think so much of this moment is death work. We're having to encounter death in a very different way. My, you know, a few weeks ago, um, Kaleo, who's the editor of Loam as well as the founder of Earth is Ohana, and I facilitated this workshop series uh, online. And this was just kind of right after most places had gone into lockdown. And one of our participants shared with us that you know, right now we're in this moment of contemplating, you know, most of us are in a moment of contemplating what will be. Um, But in a few months from now, we'll be reflecting on who we know that died and who was impacted. And, and that's true for many in our community already. You know, Loam is a community fundamentally of caregivers, and we have a lot of social workers and nurses and uh, cashiers who are part of our constellation. Um, but that that comment really hit me so hard is that is that this is a time when we're having to think about death daily and the role of spirituality is is so important in learning how to navigate that death work. So I'm curious to know what practices you're cultivating to help you make sense of what's emerging and and how your spirituality is shaping your relationship to this time. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
Thanks, Kate. It's such a good question. And I think actually in, in trying to craft my submission for this year's edition of Loam, these were ideas that I was really trying to put together, things that have felt real inside of me that I've had some trouble articulating. And I actually think Solnit writes about this beautifully in her book. And just so simply, um, one of the things that she talks about is that in essence, you know, religion or spirituality normalizes the things that I think particularly in the culture that we currently live in, in the United States, we really don't want to look at. Um, religion normalizes death, it normalizes illness, it normalizes suffering. In terms of my practice, I, I'm rooted in the Zen tradition. And our entire tradition um, starts from the basic premise of the first noble truth, which is all life is suffering. And when I was first kind of learning about that idea, I was like, wow, that's like really extra suffering. Like all life is suffering. That seems a little bit hyperbolic. Um, and it took me a while to understand at a, you know, at a more nuanced level, I've, I've seen folks choose a different translation of that, like all life involves stress. But if we really just understand, uh, in Zen, we would talk about sickness, old age, and death as inevitable characteristics of life. And in fact, death is the only certainty, right? We have no idea what's going to be happening in our lives, except for that we're going to die. And so when you have a spiritual or religious grounding from which your starting point is the reality of suffering or the reality of death. One of the outcomes of that, or one of like the immediate next steps is that it produces when there's really like that intimacy with the finiteness of our own lives. One of the byproducts is a real reverence for the preciousness of life, right? Just this understanding that this is not always going to be here and in fact, moment to moment, it could be gone. Having some scaffolding from a spiritual life or a spiritual connection actually allows us to step into that and to find the beauty and the liberation in that. You know, as someone working in the climate movement, I think that's actually what brought me into a sense of needing to pursue a spiritual life. Um, I would not have described myself as spiritual at all when I was 18. And then fast forward a little over 10 years and I'm living at a Zen monastery. So for me, a lot of that was finding that I wasn't getting resourced in the way that I needed to be working in a secular climate movement. And I was like, you know, this work is asking me to think every single day. If I'm staying really grounded, what I'm doing every single day is I'm fighting to decrease the amount of death that is going to occur because of the climate crisis. And only having a strategic plan was not satisfying like the existential angst that I had. And so stepping into a spiritual practice, which for me is the Rinzai Zen tradition, we do sitting meditation, we do, you know, work practice where we're in motion in meditation, but it really brings us internally. And I think this is one of the, the great gifts of all the great wisdom traditions is when you begin to really quiet what's happening outside of you, what's happening on your insides, you drop into what we could talk about as absolute awareness. And there's something that is living you, that's living me, that is pervasive, that goes 
before and beyond my thinking mind, before and beyond my feeling body, that there's actually a steady stream that is moving through me, that is animating this life um, that came before me and that will last well after I leave. And in that sense, uh, you know, one of my teachers just this week uh, was talking about the fact that with that understanding, we understand that life is a temporary state of being. And then in fact, death is what is deathless, right? This life is something that is temporary and transient and because of that, so precious. And that thing that extends beyond our lifetimes is completely unbreakable. And so I think you can come into that realization through many different paths, many different traditions. I think a lot of younger folks these days who've had some decoupling from a deeper religious background or from, you know, an indigenous lineage because so much of this has been interrupted, we come back to it in a lot of different ways, I think very intuitively. Uh, but it's those understandings that make it possible to show up day to day with more just resilience and availability to what may happen in this lifetime however brilliant and beautiful or however devastating um, and difficult, because there's just a deeper anchor. Um, there's something that goes beyond my day-to-day life that's just a through line. One of my teachers talks about it as the thread weaving together all the beads of, you know, each day of my life is a bead and there's just this thread that keeps running through it. So I think that is, I think, one of the great opportunities of this moment. I think it's one of the great kind of developmental challenges that people of our climate generation, so to speak, are confronted with. And it is both incredibly, you know, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's it's very ambitious, you know, like it requires a level of ambitious to step to it, but it also offers us this incredible opportunity to grow and evolve into, you know, that type of understanding, how we carry that in our world. And this pandemic with the likelihood that this is going to be somewhat more finite, right? Like our populations will achieve herd immunity at some point when we're not exactly sure, but it's pretty uh, inevitable that that's going to happen. Um, that's a little bit different than climate change. And so it, it, it gives us the opportunity to really think about living and dying, to think about what it means to be alive. And then what becomes important in that preciousness of life? What, are, what do I do with my waking life? Um, and then how do I go about my day knowing that we have this other climate crisis that doesn't take a break, that's not slowing down just because of the pandemic, um, that, you know, those wheels are in motion. So I think for me, I, I do return to a Zen practice as a really integral facet of how I show up to the climate movement. And these days, you know, something I wasn't expecting, how I show up to navigating my day-to-day life in the context of a pandemic. Um, and I think it's just, it it is so empowering to have language and to have community that has normalized death. Um, it is not easy and it's not like done. Like I haven't arrived, but it, it's really different these days to be um, right now as the rest of the world, I think is doing, or at least the rest of the US. We're on Zoom a lot. That's where I'm meeting my Zen community. We're not even in person. I live on the grounds of the monastery. Um, 
But to have a lot of community that has some robustness to really face the suffering of this moment and face the death, um, it's incredibly empowering. It's grounding. It's nurturing. So I think those are among the critical roles that spirituality plays, not only in this moment as we look at the day-to-day impacts of the pandemic in which we find ourselves, but as we think about this broader period in human history, this really unique moment in human history where we're actually balancing the life and death of the planet that we live on, it's just incredibly invaluable practice and scaffolding to be able to draw off of. I totally connect with so much of that. And before we close, I would love to learn if there's any practice in particular that's helping you navigate this time. I was reading an article, an interview um, with Jack Cornfield of the New York Times a couple of days ago where he talks about bowing to your emotions as they arise, you know, bowing to your loneliness, bowing to your anxiety. And it was such a small and simple offering, but one that really helped me greet everything that's arising with greater kindness and so I want to know if there's there's any tangible practice that you've been exploring that's helped you helped you greet these emotions, helped you make sense of this moment. Yeah, thanks, Kate. For me, it's sitting breath based meditation. Uh, I've I've realized that I need to be very disciplined myself about sitting down on the cushion every day in the absence of being able to practice with the community right now. And I guess I would just say that different meditation practices are different in terms of of what they instruct you to do. Um, Zen is a little bit sparse, so to speak. Um, It is really the practice of sitting down, you know, legs crossed if you can, but a chair, if that's more available to you or more comfortable for whatever reason, Any position in which your knees are lower than your hips, that's often what's going to make things tense up and you need your body to be able to relax in order to be able to meditate effectively. And so I sit down on a cushion, ground myself into my sits bones, make sure that my knees are grounded as well and that they're lower than my hips, Um, sit up with a really straight spine, um, head over shoulders, over hips, and uh, you know, just begin to follow the breath. Um, for us, it's the following of the exhale and you can count on that. Um, you can do the counting practice, but just to follow the exhale and notice, you know, notice whatever is coming up, notice your thoughts, your feelings, and it's just the practice of coming back to the breath. Notice the birds outside, come back to the breath. And in that, you know, there's just a focused concentration practice in that there is something that makes you fully aware of what's happening in that moment. And it could be anything. I've sat when I wake up just like on the wrong side of bed and grumpy. Um, I sit some days when I'm having like an incredible day and it just brings you into being present to what is happening in a very kind of controlled environment. Like it's just you and your interior um, it sounds way simpler than it is. Like it's definitely harder to do that than I think it sounds like, or maybe for some folks, it sounds incredibly difficult, but that's the practice. Um, and because 
we just start from the most fundamental pulse in our body, right? I mean, we've got breath, we've got blood pulse, and we've got the uh, craniosacral rhythm, but to just really focus in on something that's always available to you, the breath, it's a really wonderful touchstone so that any other time in the day that something's coming up, that something's feeling overwhelming, you just come back to the breath as you know, that inhale, exhale that's running through the full course of your day uninterrupted um, that's just animating you. So that's it for me. That's that's the practice. Thank you so much for sharing that, Lucia. And just so grateful to connect with you as always. I just, yeah, listening to you, I feel like I can always breathe a little deeper just knowing you're in this world. So thank you again so, so much. Um, And I also want to thank the amazing Isaac Silk uh, for producing and editing our podcast, as well as Isaac and Faith Harding for intermusic. And of course, as always, you all are lone listeners. Community right now um, is so especially cherished and I feel really lucky every day that I get to be in community with you all. Thank you so much, Kate.